So hello and welcome to the HRW Shift podcast. I'm Katie Irving, the Global Head of Behavioral Science here at HRW Shift, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Leah to talk about how do we get detailed and accurate information about people's memories. Now, this is a question that comes up a lot in a market research environment. You know, we reflect on we reflect on doctors' perceptions of particular products, and we might say, what did you say to the last patient to whom you prescribed this therapy? We often want to know about the patient journey and we say things or we explore things with patients like what did you do at diagnosis? What did the doctor tell you? What information did you look for? Who else did you speak with about your diagnosis? And these are things that are really useful for pharmaceutical and healthcare companies to know, but they're really difficult to explore. And I'm delighted to have Leah with us because she has a background that makes her particularly well suited to look at some of the ways we can learn from other disciplines about answering these questions better. Hi, thanks for having me. My name is Leah and I am a research executive at HRW and I studied a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in forensic psychology and my main subjects of interest were forensic interviewing techniques and memory and mnemonics techniques to get the most detailed and accurate memories we can. Great. And it's great to have you back on the podcast, Leah. Regular listeners will recognize Leah's dulcet tones from the episode on recognizing faces and voices. But it'd be great to hear a little bit more, Leah, about why is it challenging to get accurate answers to questions like this? It's, it's quite a good question. So when we ask someone to tell us about an event or a conversation that's happened, uh, we might not get always the, the most detailed and accurate account from them. And this can be down to um, a few things. So, for example, they may not remember the finer details of what happened or what was said, but also it can be down to other things like social or communicative factors relating to the situation in which we're asking them. Um, so when considering someone's memory for a past event, uh, which is long-term episodic memory we're talking about, um, I think there might be a commonly held misconception about memory. So uh, somewhere in our brains, we possess a sort of preserved sequence of events or like an accurate record of what's happened to us. And when we want to recall an event, we can kind of rewind that tape and replay it. But, but that's not really the case. So recall is actually more um, of an active um, reconstructive process. And because of that, however motivated we are to tell a complete story, an accurate story, our recall is actually going to be quite fallible. So um, a lot of the research that's been done into this to investigate the limits and vulnerabilities of human memory have found some, some aspects that do make our memories more fallible. And there's a lot to be still discovered that one of the factors that seems to limit our recall performance is having a delay between experiencing an event and then trying to tell someone about it. So it's been shown that the detail we recall from an event decreases as the weight between that event and then recollecting it increases. So you see like a gradual decay over time of that detail. So it also seems that the finer details, um, you know, details that are in the peripheral environment of the event are more quick to decay than things like, you know, the gist of it, you know, what roughly happened. Yeah, and that's really relevant if we're thinking about the situation that we're often in 
when we're trying to explore, for example, an objective about how the diagnosis transpired for an individual patient, depending on the area, it's often been several years since their diagnosis took place. So you're right that that decay could be incredibly problematic. Yeah, exactly. And so you've got that um, delay that's that's very common. You know, often when we ask someone to to tell us about something, there is that delay. But not only are we likely to lose detail over time, but also our memories are, are quite vulnerable to changes. So um, something that's become quite a big concern um, in, in research is our susceptibility to misinformation that can then distort our memories of what happened um, in a particular event or conversation. So um, one of the most well-known experiments that looked at this was by Loftus and Palmer back in 1974. And they found that participants' estimates of the speed of vehicles in films of traffic accidents varied quite a lot depending on how they were asked the question about it. So the participants would give higher estimates when they were asked how fast the cars were going when they smashed into each other than when they were asked the same question, but with the verb bumped or um, collided instead. So in that word smashed, you've got some implicit connotations there of speed that the other words don't have. So it influenced how they recalled it. And also in a further experiment they did, they found that participants who'd been asked about the cars smashing into each other were more likely to falsely recall seeing broken glass in the film than those who'd been asked about the cars hitting each other. So that's a, a false memory. There was no broken glass in the original film. Since then, there's been quite a lot of research that's found evidence of misleading questions that can then decrease the accuracy of recall. It seems that adding to the problem already of delay, this susceptibility to misinformation also is greater after longer delays. So that's that's something quite interesting and, and quite concerning. I, I love that. I mean, it's terrible news in terms of the accuracy of our memories, but I love that study and I've read about that before. And I've also heard about studies where they've been able to, in, using suggestive questioning, encourage um, people to recall a false memory. So the way in which you ask the questions can actually be incredibly influential in people's ability to remember and the way in which they remember. And I think that's so important that we really problematize that myth of memory being like a film recorder and recognize that it is more fragmented and that it is subject to these influences based on how things are asked. Yeah, definitely. Um, so misleading questions are, are a major problem. And so we've got that problem, you know, these vulnerabilities of memory, and, and there are many more. Um, so, you know, the, the list goes on of ways that our memories are vulnerable to, to decay or to, um, to distortion. But um, there's not only that. So earlier I said that aside from people not remembering finer details, there are also some sort of social dynamics and, um, you know, expectations of a situation that can lead into us not telling people what we know. So can I ask you a question now, Katie? You sure can. Okay, it should be quite an easy one. What did you have for breakfast today? So I had a, a sesame bagel with cream cheese and everything bagel seasoning. Nice, sounds nice. Mm -hmm. um, but I noticed that you left some details out there. So you didn't tell me how much this bagel weighed and you didn't tell me where you bought it from. And you didn't list out all of the ingredients of the bagel for me. Um, why didn't you tell me all of that? Oh, that I didn't know you needed to know that, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you didn't expect that I'd want to know how much it weighed. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> that's not a detail I usually share on my uh, breakfast. Well, yeah, that's it's reasonable to expect that I wouldn't want to know this. So we're making these kind of judgments about the level of detail that people want to hear from us um, in any given situation. So um, I imagine in another situation, we might have quite a different expectation. For example, um, if you arrived, say, an hour late to meet me for lunch, um, you might have an account of why you were running late that would likely omit certain details too, but for other reasons. So, for example, on your way to meet me, you might not tell me that you stopped to chat for 10 minutes with a colleague that you met on the way. So you might not tell me these things, but you might also exaggerate other details. So, for example, you might tell me that the traffic was horrendous and, you know, tell me information about how bad it was and how long it took you um, to get past so-and-so junction. You know, that would be so that you're not judged negatively by me. You know, maybe there were things that stopped you from being on time. So you can see how it's easy for our interpretation of what's expected in a situation to influence how we tell a story, how much we say and how accurate it will be. Yeah, absolutely. And it it is one of those things where I think quite non-consciously we are trying to assess what the other person is looking for out of that conversation and and managing social expectations, like you say, is this something where I need to make an excuse that they're going to believe and therefore the additional detail is worthwhile? Or, you know, is it is it something I'm embarrassed of? Is it something yeah, that they I don't think they need to know that, like the weight of my bagel? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, in our day to day lives, um, these factors, you know, these expectations of us and how we interpret a situation, they, they shouldn't really cause too many problems. I mean, we don't usually require that level of details from our, our friends or our colleagues. And we often would expect them to, you know, summarise something. And sometimes we actually prefer them to tell us a less than accurate account if it's more palatable than the truth. But there are contexts in which detail and accuracy are actually essential. So, um, you know, if we're looking at an example, it would be when police interview witnesses to a crime. So in this context, vague or inaccurate accounts could really seriously compromise a criminal investigation and could even lead to um, serious miscarriages of justice. So that's a situation in which um, you know, a lot of research has been done and they have um, found ways to try and you know, maximise the detail and accuracy of memory reports during those interviews. So that's something that I'd like to tell you a little bit about now. So it's a, a standardised procedure they're using, which is designed to aid recall and minimise the interviewer's influences on witnesses' accounts. So um, you've probably heard of it. It's the cognitive interview. Um, this is a standardised interview protocol, as I said, which has come to be one of the most established and frequently used interview protocols across the world. And I guess you could see it as a sort of toolbox of interview techniques. And there's research to suggest that it is actually quite effective. So there's been a meta-analysis in 2010 that found that using this interview procedure can give significant increases in the number of correct details that witnesses or interviewees report. Um, so we want to know how, how it does this, like what are the components of this interview then, because it could be great to, to learn from. Yeah. OK, firstly, there are social factors that we talked about earlier, our tendency to adjust our memory reports according to the demands of a situation. This is something that um, the police want to address quite early on in the interview. So after they establish some rapport with the interviewee, they're going to give them quite detailed instructions, a number of instructions that inform the interviewee of what's expected of them, 
for example, it can be to report everything, you know, not to edit their thoughts or omit details that they don't think are important, but just tell them everything. There's also um, an instruction not to exaggerate details, to only say what, what they're sure happened, so not to guess details. And it sounds really simple just telling people these instructions, but research suggests that just including these um, instructions, for example, to report everything can be effective in, in getting those um, more detailed accounts from, from interviewees. And that makes a lot of sense based on what you were just saying about how we do quite automatically decide to edit it. And so just having that expectation setting that that's not required, that's not useful, is actually quite remarkable in itself, simple but remarkable. Yeah, especially because um, in a police interview, it's a situation that people probably, well, you know, if they're witnesses to a crime that they may not have been in that situation before. So it's quite good to set those expectations, sort of acknowledging that this is an unfamiliar situation and then setting the expectations so that we get what we want from, from the interviewees. So the next phase of the interview, the officer will hand over control to the interviewee to give free recall of the event that's in question. So free recall means that they tell the interviewer everything they can remember spontaneously without being prompted by questions from the interviewer. So um, we've heard how, you know, asking questions can potentially give misinformation or it can um, somehow influence interviewees. So they want to try and limit the the input from the interview at this point. So um, in order to get as much information as they can, really, they can help the um, the interviewee by providing them with some instructions. So there are several uh, mnemonics, and these are memory aiding tools that can be used to help them in that retrieval process. So um, one of the core mnemonic components that's traditionally used in the cognitive interview is called mental reinstatement of context. So the officer will ask the interviewee to bring to mind details of what their physical surroundings were, um, their thoughts, their feelings at the time of the event that initially stand out in their memory. So that's with the aim of trying to mentally recreate the context of what they experienced at that time. And this process has um, theoretical support from the encoding specificity principle that was outlined by Tolving and Thompson in 1973. Uh, They found that recall performance will be enhanced if there's a significant overlap between the context that people are in when they recall an event and the details of the event itself. So mentally recreating the event context should boost recall and cue them into remembering more details. And research suggests it does. And so there's research to suggest that when this mnemonic is used, witnesses or mock witnesses in lab studies have been able to report more correct details compared to not using any recall supporting technique. So it's quite a useful uh, mnemonic, that one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we talk a lot about the importance of context and how you're so influenced by the the environment around you, the people that are around you, the emotional state that you're in, the time pressure, etc. And so even something as simple as asking people to kind of put themselves back in that context, bring that back into the picture is so important in helping us get closer to the actual moments that they lived through. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's something quite important at the beginning, that the more information they can get at that point from the interviewee volunteering it freely and spontaneously, the more the better, because, you know, that's not influenced by the interviewer so much. That's from the interviewee themselves. However, even though they try and get a lot of information from, from that phase of the interview, 
it's often the case that they need to then probe for more details. So later on in the cognitive interview, they'll need to ask questions for participants to get that additional information. So um, as we know, questioning a witness about an event can introduce misinformation and implications in the question can distort memories. And also there may be a response bias if they think that the interviewer is expecting something from them. So um, for that reason, there are um, some guidelines for police officers on what type of questions um, should and maybe should not be used. So ideally open prompts such as, well, tell me about the other person you mentioned. Those are preferred. Open questions that don't lead the witness to a particular answer are also fine and appropriate. So, um, you know, you could ask, oh, what were they wearing? When did you arrive? That's that's fine. Um, witnesses should also be told that they can say, I don't know, if they don't know the answer to any of these questions. So they don't have to um, try and guess answers if they think they haven't given enough. And then if they really have to, closed questions are kind of like uh, almost a last resort. Um, so they're acceptable if necessary, but they should be as free from assumptions from the interviewer. So things like, you know, was the person rude to you or was the noise very loud? These things would be quite leading, you know, that they're making assumptions there that a person said something that was you know, a little bit impolite or making assumption that there was something loud or noisy. So these should be avoided throughout the interview as much as possible, because, you know, as soon as you start introducing those assumptions or that kind of information, um, then that's when you, know, you could have implications for the reliability of the witness accounts. That is so fascinating. I love hearing about the kind of psychological grounding behind these types of things. And there's just no higher stakes situation that is better to learn from if we're thinking about accuracy of memories than the cognitive interview and how the police use it. I'm excited about some of the applications. I think some of these things align with things that we try and do anyway in market research, but this really underscores why it's so important. So I think there's a lot of applications for what we can do with this, but I would start by maybe caveating that this is really about accuracy of recall and about a lot of little details. And sometimes to answer broader business questions, we don't actually need to know the degree of detail. We just want to get accuracy on particular elements. So although there's a lot of applications that I think we can make to ways that we ask questions and approach market research in a healthcare context, not all of it is necessary for the types of things that we're looking at typically. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you're right, it's worth saying that, you know, much of our research focuses on respondents' opinions of product descriptions that they're shown during the interviews or treatment areas that they're currently involved in. So, in that way, it may not be so applicable to some of those interviews unless we're asking them to go back, you know, a, a, into something in the past that happened to them. For example, you mentioned earlier patient patient journey mapping interviews or recall of, of conversations that doctors have had, that kind of thing. Sometimes detail is needed, so uh, we can learn a few things. And I think um, I think we do some of these things anyway. So earlier I mentioned about setting expectations. That's something that we actually do in pretty pretty much every interview we ever do. So, you know, letting the respondents know that, you know, we're looking for a certain level of detail and for them to tell us everything they can. Also telling them that, you know, if they don't know the answer, that's that's absolutely fine. They don't have to try too hard to, to guess what happened. And also, I think we always tell them that, you know, we're interested in their honest answers. 
as much detail as they can give, but honest answers. So they know that it's okay, they can they can say what they're really thinking and we're not going to judge them for it. Yeah, definitely. I think the what was really standing out to me as you were talking about the cognitive interview process, Leah, is that say you don't know is really important to emphasize, especially when we're dealing with expert audiences like physicians or nurses, that giving them permission to say that they don't know or that they don't have an opinion is not something that we typically emphasize, even though you're right, it is a built in part of our introduction. I think really emphasizing that is a useful thing to avoid some of that social pressure to feel like you need to suss what details are relevant or or edit your testimony. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine there is a bit of pressure there. You know, we've invited them to this interview and we're expecting them to be experts on everything, but nobody can be an expert on everything. So it's we expect that you won't be able to answer everything. Um, and we've designed these questions because we want to know, but we don't expect that you necessarily will know. And there's, you know, other um, other elements of the cognitive interview. For example, um, I didn't go into too much detail earlier, but it is important to um, establish a rapport with the interviewees. So things like, um, you know, things that have been studied in this are using a, a nice tone of voice, like gentle tone of voice, um, showing in our responses to things they say that, you know, we are genuinely interested, you know, giving them that feedback that we can say, oh, yeah, keep going. Um, this is great. And creating sort of a relaxed and friendly interview environment. And this has been, you know, of course, it's it's professional. It's, it's just what we would do anyway. You know, it's, it's polite to show the person that you've asked a question that you're interested in their answer. But it's also good for, um, you know, getting getting detailed accounts. So studies that have looked at building this rapport element, they've said that actually this is important for increasing the recall of correct details. So it means that we're going to get a better quality answer from the respondents as well. And I think that's so important. We we often talk about and learn about the importance of things like physical mirroring and gesture mirroring and language um, repetition, which can also help with rapport building and, and also avoid some of the the danger of kind of um, steering the conversation or suggesting things that could alter the way that the memories are are recalled. But that process of building rapport is still so critical and is it's really underpinning for me how working in a digital environment, all digital environment, that it's still really important that we have that bit of expectation setting and also just a bit of chit chat to create that rapport and aid the memory elicitation process in an interview. Yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, it is important, especially when we're doing um, in-person interviews, whenever whenever we can do that again, then, um, yeah, body language and stuff does come into it. But um, yeah, there definitely are things that we can do on the phone and in virtual environments that can create that good rapport. Yeah. And then I think the thing that you mentioned that we do obviously really try and do is make sure that we're really asking open questions and that we're not steering questions. And you talked a bit about how important it is within the cognitive interview that you start by allowing the the participants to just free recall from memory. And I think that unstructured recollection and unstructured conversation can be such an important and useful tool in a market research context. The only challenge is balancing it and being pragmatic with the actual objectives that we need to explore. And if we just allow the, our participants to talk without any interjections, we can potentially lose a lot of time. So balancing enough kind of free and spontaneous 
discussion with steering towards the topics that we're interested in without inserting things that are going to prime them, which is such an important balance that we need to strike. And again, this cognitive interview really underscores why that's so important. Yeah, definitely. The cognitive interview um, is quite long. <laughs> like if you were going to do a full cognitive interview, even the police find it to be too long. So they often don't, like, even though mental reinstatement of context is found to be one of the most um, established and, and one of the traditional elements of it, police officers themselves actually don't always have time to do it properly. It's one of the things they drop. However, the bits that we talked about in terms of like, you know, question framing and those bits actually don't take that much time. So it's perfectly feasible that we would be able to incorporate those important parts into our interviews. I completely agree. And thank you, Leah, for sharing your perspective on this. It's great to learn more about the detail of the cognitive interview and the implications that we can use for market research. And certainly an area that I think we can learn a lot from and apply directly to the way that we ask questions to get more accurate detail around people's memories. So thanks very much for coming on to talk with us today, Leah. Oh no, thank you for inviting me. And stay tuned for more from the HOW Shift podcast in our next episode. <laughs>